Shatila Refugee Camp is a four-part documentary series that examines some of the core political and social issues affecting Palestinian refugees in the Lebanon. Beirut, the capital of the Lebanon, once known as the Paris of the Middle East, is now more widely recognised for its massive influx of displaced people from Palestine, Iraq, Syria and Kurdistan. The country is under a huge amount of political and economic pressure as it is now host to the largest population of refugees globally. I went to Shatila refugee camp to meet with some Irish volunteers, an Irish NGO based in Beirut, community workers, Palestinian refugees and political organisations within the camp to discuss what life is like in Shatila refugee camp. In today's programme, I'll be speaking with James Bone from the Irish-Palestinian Solidarity Campaign, and he'll be explaining to us the connections between Palestinian and Jewish communities in the disputed territories. We'll also be listening to interviews from a number of Irish volunteers in the Lebanon and what motivates them to get involved in such work. The people that we call today call the Palestinian Arabs are only called Arabs because they speak the Arabic language. It does not mean that they are descended uh, overwhelmingly from people who came from uh, the Arabian Peninsula, which is where um, Muhammad was born. The Palestinian Arabs are simply people who speak Arabic. We talk about Moroccan Arabs, Algerian Arabs, Tunisian Arabs, Iraqi Arabs, Syrian Arabs. All of these people are called Arabs simply because when the Muslim uh, Empire spread from the Arabian Peninsula across North Africa and then eastwards um, across the Middle East, um, it brought with it its own language, which eventually became the language of the imperial administration. And over the centuries, that language replaced the indigenous languages in those countries in much the same way as the English language replaced the indigenous languages in various countries that came to be ruled by, by Britain. So Palestinian Arabs are simply people who live in Palestine who speak Arabic. Now, what is, their, what is the origin of the Palestinian Arabs? Well, it's very interesting to quote somebody no less than David Ben-Gurion, who became the first prime minister of Israel in 1948. I'd like to give you two quotations from different parts of, of this book. First of all, by way of preamble, the word in Arabic for peasant farmer or small-scale farmer, or for the plural for multiple uh, small-scale farmers is felachim. The word with the same meaning in, in Hebrew is felachim. The, the word felachim, which is used in Arabic, which is an Arabic word, is actually used in English. So talking about the Palestinian farmers, this is what David Ben-Gurion uh, wrote in um, the book that he published in 1918. The felachim are not descendants of the Arab conquerors who captured the land of Israel and Syria in the 7th century current era. The Arab victors did not destroy the agricultural population they found in the country. They expelled only the alien Byzantine rulers. They expelled only the alien Byzantine rulers and did not touch the local population. Nor did the Arab invaders uh, settle the land. Even in their original homeland, the Arabians did not engage in agriculture. They did not seek new lands on which to settle their peasantry, which hardly existed because they were mostly uh, herders rather than agricultural farmers. The whole interest of the Arab conquerors in the new countries was political, religious and material. To rule, to propagate Islam 
and to collect taxes. So that's Levin bin Gurion pointing out that when the Arabs from Arabia came up into Palestine in the seventh century after Christ, uh, they didn't displace the indigenous population, purely the foreign rulers. He says, the logical conclusion resulting from everything said so far is this. The agricultural community, which the Arabs found in Palestine, which he called Eretz Israel, or the land of Israel, in the 7th century was the Jewish community which had remained in its country despite all the persecution and repression of Imperial Rome and Palestine. And the third quote I wanted to give was, in spite of much intermixing, the majority of the Fellahin in Western Palestine are unified in their external appearance and in their origin. And in their veins, without a doubt, flows much Jewish blood. From the Jewish peasants who in the days of persecution and terrible oppression had renounced their tradition and their people in order to maintain their attachment and loyalty to the land of the Jews. The reason why I place so much emphasis on this quote is that even a leading Zionist who later on became one of the leading ethnic cleansers of the Palestinians from Palestine in 1948, even he back in 1917, 1918 was willing to admit the truth, namely that the Palestinian Muslim Arabs are descended from the people who were Jews back many centuries ago. I, I emphasize this because I think that a great many people think that the Palestinian Arabs are somehow invaders because the word Arab seems to indicate they came from somewhere else, namely from Arabia. And somehow they also think that the, Pal that the Israeli Jews really are the indigenous people of Palestine because they associate Jews with, with Palestine in, in biblical times. And they think that somehow or other the Palestinian Arabs have come in and they're intruding on what should really be Jewish land. The actual situation is that the Palestinian Arabs are the descendants of the indigenous people of Palestine who at one time were various, you know, worshipped various idols and so on. And then later on, presumably after the time of Abraham, uh, converted to a monotheistic religion that we nowadays call Judaism. Um, those people subsequently in the period of the later Roman Empire and in the Byzantine Empire converted to Christianity. Indeed, after the Muslim invasion, they maintained uh, their earlier religions and didn't convert to Islam until several centuries later. So the important point to note here is that the people of Palestine, the Palestinian Arabs, actually are the descendants of the indigenous people. So then you might ask, who, who are the Israeli Jews? Well, Israeli Jews are the descendants of people who migrated into Palestine in the last, primarily in the la inside the last hundred years, although as I mentioned to you when I talked about Napoleon a while ago, there were small numbers who had migrated into Palestine for various reasons, some uh, religious, back over 200 years ago. But then you might say, well, yes, but where do the, where do the ancestors of these, of these Jews come from? These Jews who migrated into Palestine um, in the 20th century and the ones who came in the 19th century, where did their ancestors come from? Well, the fact is their ancestors are, came from a wide variety of countries. See, it's important to realise that although Judaism today is not a missionary religion, Judaism today does accept converts, although it's very hard to convert to Judaism. Judaism today does not actually go out and seek to convert people to, to, be, to Judaism. But in fact, that used to be the case probably around the 7th or 8th century after the time of Christ. There were many Jewish kingdoms in various parts of Eurasia and Africa um, in the centuries after Christ. In fact, probably most of you are aware of the fact that there was a, a Jewish rebellion against uh, Roman rule in Palestine around the year AD 70, 70 years after the time of Christ. 
you probably don't know that the significant aid to those Jewish rebels came from what is now Kurdistan in northern Iraq, where there was a Jewish kingdom called Adiabene, which was actually a kingdom where the people were the ancestors of the current day Kurds, but their ruling family had converted to Judaism and had influenced many numbers of their of their people to convert to Judaism as well. So there was a Jewish kingdom in what's now Kurdistan in northern Iraq. And interestingly, after 1948, a lot of Jews migrated from Kurdistan to, to Palestine, sucked in by the Zionists who wanted to have people to replace the land from which they had expelled the Palestinian farmers. There was another Jewish kingdom uh, created in what's called, uh, what we nowadays call Yemen. That, that kingdom was called Himyar uh, in, in the days when it was a Jewish kingdom. That kingdom was formed around the 4th century after Christ and lasted essentially until after the arrival of Islam. Another large Jewish kingdom was f- uh, formed in what's now southern Russia, essentially between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea and heading north up into southern Russia. That kingdom was called Khazaria. There were also smaller Jewish kingdoms in North Africa, in the mountains of Morocco and Algeria. As well as that, of course, there were, there were Jews uh, right around the parts of, the, of the, the countries that had been part of the Roman Empire. For example, even at the time of Christ, most Jews did not live in Palestine. Most Jews lived outside Palestine. The biggest Jewish population in one place was actually in the city of Alexandria, which is in Egypt. So Judaism, at the time of Christ and before it, and for many centuries after the time of Christ, was a missionary religion. So at the time of Christ even already, most Jews were the descendants of converts. After the time of Christ, most Jews continued to be descendants of converts. When the people of Palestine converted from Judaism to Christianity and then into Islam, it became the case that the overwhelming majority of uh, the Jews of the world were the descendants of converts because the, the majority of the descendants of the people who had originally created the Jewish religion actually had moved on from Judaism to Christianity and then to Islam. So it's, it's really important to note, I mean, one of, one of the intriguing issues about the whole Israel-Palestine conflict is the confusion that exists because of, well, it's partly because people have never actually really been exposed to what uh, has been rendered apparently complex because it just hasn't been addressed. Now, this issue is not, it may be new to most of your listeners, but it wouldn't have been new to scholars several hundred years ago. Uh, it was fairly common knowledge. It just, after the creation of the Zionist movement, and particularly after the Holocaust, when the fear of contradicting Jewish aspirations for self-determination became very unfashionable. But, and I find this very exciting, in recent years, uh, this true story has started to bubble up to the surface again. And one of the main disseminators of the truth here is actually an Israeli historian called Shlomo Zand, who is a professor of history at the University of Tel Aviv. In 2008, he published a Hebrew text, Why and How the Jewish People Was Invented. And essentially what he says is that the phrase the Jewish people means essentially nothing more than to say the Buddhist people or the Muslim people or the Catholic people or the Protestant people. Jews are not of a common genetic descent. They are simply people of varied genetic descent who subscribed to a common religion, although, of course, there is also the anomaly of what are called secular Jews, namely people who are not even Jewish by religion, but actually simply are descended from maybe parents or grandparents or or great-great-grandparents who were followers of the Jewish religion. What's what's happened recently in, in the last 100 years or so is that we have been sort of conditioned to regard the Jewish 
what we now regard as the Jewish people, what are now called the Jewish people, as being somehow a, an ethnic group. So what, what Zand is saying is this whole notion of a, of a Jewish people which needs self-determination somewhere and why not make it in Palestine is, is essentially an artificial construct that was developed by people who wished to solve the problem of those believers in the Jewish religion who lived in Europe and who were being subject to persecution. Here are some of the Irish volunteers talking about their motivations for going to Lebanon. Tommy Donald from Bannon Sloan, yeah? And how did you get involved in the project, Tommy? Well, I see this up on Facebook, you see, and I, I had a loose end, you see. Normally I go to the, the West Bank, I've been there six times the past six years, a long duration, three months at a time, but once I see it was, uh, you know, I know a little about Shatil, or Shepherd Shatil, the, well, the massacre and one of the worst refugee camps in, you know. Lebanon is not good for looking after its, its, its Nakba Palestinian refugees. So, you know, I just jumped at opportunities like we're doing some good. Like, well, we're packed to the gills, you know, with humanitarian aid convoy, and there's five of us in Trepid Spurs, let's say, you know, and we, we, we've got some uh, media attention, and, and the, the county mayor of, of, of well, Cork, like a, a Cork county mayor, get attention. So it's raising high visibility, and, and I'm sure it'll be a moral booster for the Palestinians, you know, especially with their brothers and sisters in Gaza just being slaughtered, like in close to a thousand, if it's not surpassed it now, mm -hmm. a thousand casualties, like an out-and-out massacre, you know? And of course, Shabra, or Shatila, endured his own massacre back in 82, when the, the, the Israelis invaded uh, Lebanon and uh, the, with these phalangist right-wing fascist thugs, and they surrounded, uh, the Israelis surrounded uh, Shatila camp, and, lit up the, uh, the scene uh, for their Spalangist guys and they just over 48 hours up to 4,000 people just butchered, you know. When governments don't act, sir, then it's up to civil society to act. You know, that's that's where I'm coming from. That's why I'm here on the ship now, you know. So, uh, and have you been on other convoys before? No, I haven't. I, I always went to... Uh, once you go into a convoy, you see, you're, you're more or less finished with going to the West Bank. I mean, let's say Zoe Lawler, a, a strong activist, IPSA activist in, in uh, Limerick, you know, she went on the MP Susha or whatever and uh, brought into Ashton and she's banned for 10 or 15 years, you see. But I, I try to box a bit more clever, you see. I want to keep going back to the West Bank. What do you think of the current situation in, in Shatila and, and in Lebanon with all that conflict going on around us? Do you think there's going to be... Yeah, well, uh, at the moment there's a, huge, uh, uh, there's a huge influx of, of uh, Syrian refugees, you know, fle fleeing the so-called Islamic State out and out thugs that were into female genital mutilation. They brought out, uh, issued an edict in Mosul, you know, women to violate themselves compulsory. They're blowing up the, uh, uh, you know, a major shrine of Joshua and uh, or Jonah or whatever as we would know them. And this is among three or four, and they're out and out out-and-out out destructive, but they're, but they're trained by the Americans, uh, subsidised, uh, bankrolled by the Qatar and by Saudi Arabia, uh, trained over in Turkey and Jordan, and uh, you know, and in Syria, like the rebels, but in in, in Iraq, where well, they've taken over more or less a third of the country, you know, there is, let's say, a serious threat to world peace, you know, so wouldn't the same person, just by crossing an arbitrary uh, borderline becomes a freedom fighter into this monstrous threat to world peace like you know it's it's a complete uh, propaganda stuff like or whatever and but uh, Shatila most of the predominance of the people there now are, are, are uh, Syrian refugees and it's one of the most still deprived 
uh, uh, refugee camps in the world bear none. It's even worse than in Gaza. And that, that's saying something, you see, because the Lebanese government is not good for uh, basic sanitation and electricity and people are electrocuted there. There's so many, I've lost count so many annually, the deaths from uh, electrocution, the power lines are overhead to, and uh, they're forbidden to uh, work in night over 90 professionals. And if you contrast that with, if you contrast with Syria, I mean, the sad, they were the best treaties out of all the uh, Palestinian Nakba refugees from 48 and much better than Jordan and they were not forbidden to any professions. They had full civil rights there. Even even uh, the, the Palestinian refugee camp in, in uh, Damascus, like there was a modern, like a modern city. You know, not a, as a, as you would visualise a camp. And with Assad, then uh, is targeted by the West. He's, he sides with Hezbollah in Lebanon and uh, and with Syria, like so. They take out uh, they take out uh, Assad, and uh, Syria's in trouble. Uh, you know, and and. and and Hezbollah, uh, the supply lines uh, from Iran are severely uh, impaired, you know. So th that's, that's what is on a, a proxy war by the Americans and the European Union. Of course, we're in is the French, of course. We're on a French ship at the moment, but, you know, damn Holland and these went so cozy before them, you know. And they're playing this empire again. And the UK are there, like, you know. And, uh, you know, it's just a horrific situation. You know, we, we're trying to alleviate it in our own little way, you know. Of the world, and it's just a humanitarian side of 
Shatila's always been forgot about. Yeah, it's a good cause. What other projects were you working on in the Middle East? Oh, one to one in Gaza. We've done fundraising for it also. We've done a book and the proceeds went to the children's school in Bethlehem. Fundraised different art projects in the Middle East. So how many times have you been to this part of the world? Well, this would be the second. Okay. But I've worked in done other projects, but not visits, you know. Yeah. Art exhibitions. And okay. What triggered you to become an activist? It's just pure humanitarian, you know, there's no politics. It's just people trying to get on with life and every day. Okay. Nice. We're on the ship now in Tripoli. We're just heading into Tripoli port. What are your expectations now at the moment? Uh, I'm not expecting anything too grand, so um, yeah, just take it as we find it and see what way you can best help with their time. What are you planning on doing when, once you get to the camp? Uh, try and help out as much as I can. I'll take photographs, I'll then do. I'll bring them back home and show people back home the conditions and if there's any other projects we can do to fundraise we can use the photography as as a tool for the show people how they're living we're just pulling into the port of tripoli now what are you thinking i'm pretty excited uh i'm just getting my camera gear ready now to go out and photograph so you've had a pretty stressful journey so far and has it been worth it? Worth it? Uh, well, I don't know. We're not there yet, but uh, we'll find out soon, I guess. Well, originally, what I was going to look at was look at some of the original Palestinian refugees uh, and then kind of mix those portraits with infrastructure camp now. Uh, so that's kind of landscape images of, of the camp and the infrastructure, how it works and blend the two together, you're kind of left with the feeling of what refugee camp actually is and looks like and how it operates, mixed with the, the information that the, you know these people have been there since. There are, there are generations of, of families that have been there from their original family members who went there in 1948. Rabbi is a community worker in Shatila. This is him discussing some of the community initiatives within the Shatila camp. There are several events that bring together all the Palestinians from the camps in Lebanon and from Syria, from Jordan, because they're accessible to each other, but not from the West Bank, not from Turkey because of other reasons. This is, this is something really we need to look up for, it's something we need to, to target because when this happens, I think a huge step towards solving the problem of the refugees, a fair uh, solution for the issue of the refugees can happen but politically you understand how diverse ah, but there is also other layers of differences with the issue of Syria today there is also other differences there are groups of young people that are created here and there with dynamics and strategies on the ground and they're working and, but they do not meet but they don't contradict but they don't come together yet there's a lot of things happening, a lot of initiatives, a lot of that become uh, NGO kind of line, but not so NGO, still political. Yeah. Uh, some others, uh, groups who are independent uh, from uh, being a political party. There is so much happening for the Palestinian cause, 
for a just solution for the Palestinian cause on all levels, but it still needs this this moment of climax that they come all together in a you know initiatives like this have been happening, but again not on the scale that you and us maybe in this room would wish for it to happen because it stay as initiatives that happen if there is a possibility of certain funding. But the good thing about the small initiatives that took place is that after the encounter, you leave the youth and they create their own connections. So it become, it escalates. But there are also gatherings that uh, reach to uh, the number of 15 gatherings. They are not considered official camps because UNRWA does not give service to those camps. And the government does not uh, accept the existence of them. So they don't allow them to rebuild their houses and to continue existing in the yeah, spot where yeah. they are. But even though they are there yeah. and they are a population of Palestinians that also deserve to be attended. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is uh, estimated half of the population of the Palestinians in Lebanon. This is a community initiative. You know what I mean? It's not coming through an NGO contacting another NGO or a solidarity group contacting an NGO and working through it. The beauty of it is that community organizers who are active in the camp are actually doing this. They are yeah, the yeah. lead in this matter. You know, that's that's very important. It's very important because it, it's the real thing. You know that uh, uh, many Palestinians uh, look up for the, the Irish struggle. Yes. has always been part of our uh, formation, even when we were kids. Yeah. Yani we grew up learning about the Irish struggle. It was always, always present. And even when, uh, and, uh, this is uh, a quotation, it also re-raised re when the issue of uh, agreements with Israel started. We also started looking again at how it happened in, with Ireland and uh, uh, Britain, uh, Great Britain. Uh, we also wanted to comprehend uh, those of us who disagreed with the process of uh, the peace process with Israel. Rabbi goes on to speak about the refugee camps in Lebanon. Dubaiya uh, camp is uh, the only uh, existent uh, physically existent uh, Christian camp in Lebanon. Uh, politically, uh, it is a, they do different politics than the rest of the, the camps. Because they are in a Christian area, because they were so influenced by all the Christian situation, because they were the Lebanese Christian uh, uh, politics, um, and you know there are Christian parties here. So we're referring to the Christian parties and uh, the phalangists and the Auni people. Uh, so the, the politics inside this camp is rather this than the politics that you could see in any other camp. And the people who were uh, close to political, to Palestinian factions, they kind of went uh, low profile to the extreme of not existing, yani not, not showing any type of... Uh, so there is only the Inurwa that is the representative of that. Those are refugees. Even some of them, their accents are, is no more related to the Palestinians. It's so Lebanese, it's so of the area. But with Majdi, we always uh, like to take people there, so kind of push them towards 
the Palestinian city, and they are part of the Palestinian refugee cause. And they deserve to be seen and noted, and people comprehend their uh, unique situation. So we would like you to go and visit this camp, but maybe the level of discussion in politics would be different than this dynamic that we're having here. But at the end of the day, this is a a person-to-person thing. So we could go, there is a lovely uh, uh, center that uh, brings in children and youth, and it's a place that we could meet up and talk to uh, some uh, Palestinians who live there and understand what they have and tell them what we would like them to know about this group. This is Rabbi describing the security conditions within Shatila camp. So going to, uh, to the camp, of course you have noticed all the checkpoints and the permission to go into the camp and the control and then yet uh, uh, even though all the, 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 uh, the checkpoints and the military control and the security control, they still believe that uh, the problem comes from within the camp. Uh, a lot of uh, security problems which is very strange because if it is all controlled by the camp and there is, by the militaries and there are no tunnels like Gaza, there is definitely no tunnels. So how is this happening? I mean, we never know. End of program one.